All right, take your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 this morning. Uh, every January, we pause our studies, or as it is now, between studies, and we look at foundational issues. And this year, over the next few weeks, we will be seeking to help you think biblically about the many uh, challenges of modern life that we face. We want to give you biblical answers to modern issues. Scripture contains everything that we need for life and godliness. So even the challenges that we are facing today that seem absurd or strange, and that we may certainly believe were not seen in the first century, we know that the Word of God contains the answers to the challenges we face. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to look at a few of these issues and address them biblically. We're going to look at secularism, at uh, the LGBTQ plus movement, at critical theory, uh, abortion. And we're going to conclude with how to speak to our children about these issues. And so that's going to be the, the case over the next five weeks. It seems as though society has reached a tipping point into evil. Any thought to argue against any of these issues cannot be tolerated. A cultural leaders cannot believe that uh, people are still arguing about some of these things. They believe that ship has sailed, that the issue is settled. The political sphere is as divisive as it's ever been. Young people are seen as completely out of place and out of touch if they maintain their purity. The drug problem continues like a flash flood across our country. Violence, deceit, immorality, death, destruction, hardship, they're all around us. The cultural and political leadership continues to drive our culture further away from God. And sadly, today, many churches seem to echo Oprah more than they echo God. Why are we here? How did we get here? And what do we do about it? Well, again, God answers these questions for us. In the middle of the onslaught, we often feel like Habakkuk. Habakkuk, as he watched Israel around him fall into ruin, cried out, O oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you not hear me? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you look idly at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed. And justice never goes forth, for the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. We might ask how we arrived here and how people can think the way they think. To those of us raised in a biblical worldview, the thinking that leads to the place we've arrived in our society seems so foreign. We struggle even to comprehend how they can even think the way they think. We can't comprehend how someone would think they'd been born in the wrong body. We can't fathom how someone would think that, that killing babies is okay and even to be celebrated. We can't believe that some would stand for crime. 
We must understand in the middle of this that our society's religion is not Christianity. We like to believe that we're a Christian nation, but we're not. We must come to accept this if we are to understand what is happening around us. Today's religion is not Christianity, but can be summarized under the word secularism. What is secularism? Well, secularism is the absence of any binding theistic authority or belief. It is an ideology, secularism, and a consequence, secularization. It is a religious indifference which leads to intolerance of religion. Studies have shown the rise of what they call the nuns, not Catholic nuns, but the N-O-N-E-S. Nuns. In other words, what religion do you believe? They would answer, none. I believe in no religion. And in doing that, they espouse a religion themselves. Interestingly, Scripture speaks to secularism and predicts its onslaught. In today's passage, Paul presents for us a path of cultural destruction. And he demonstrates that this cultural destruction is the act of wrath by God on a culture. However, this text is not given for hopelessness. It is not so that we can just despair of the world around us. But rather, it gives us hope and the kingdom and the promise that the kingdom will advance. Let's look at our text today, Romans chapter 1. We will begin in verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women who were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind 
to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice him. Verse 16 ends with the importance of saving faith and sanctifying faith. And the reason that faith is so important is because God's righteousness is magnified by God's wrath. We serve a God of wrath. His wrath is his deep-seated anger. But the wrath of God is totally different from human anger. It does not mean that God loses his temper or flies into a rage or is malicious or spiteful or vindictive. No, it means that God has a holy hatred of evil. Often we think that the opposite of wrath is love. But actually, the alternate of wrath is not love, but neutrality, not caring at all. But God is not neutral. God hates evil. His refusal to condone it or, or come, to, come to terms with it, his just judgment on it. The wrath of God is his holy aversion to all that is, e- all that is evil and his purpose to destroy it. You know, often we only view God through the lens of love, but we must remember that our God is a God of wrath. Psalm chapter 2, verse 5, then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. In Psalm 2, 12, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Psalm 76, 6 and 7, at your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both rider and horse lay stunned. But you are to be feared. Who can stand before you when once your anger is roused? Psalm 78, 49 to 51. He let loose on them his burning anger, wrath, indignation, and distress. A company of destroying angels. He made a path for his anger. He did not spare them from death, but gave their lives over to the plague. He struck down every firstborn in Egypt, the firstfruits of their strengths. In the tents of Ham. Psalm 90, 7 to 9. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you. Our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We will bring our years to an end like a sigh. Jeremiah 7, verse 20. Therefore says the Lord God, behold, my anger and my wrath will be poured out on this place upon man and beast, upon the trees of the field and the fruit of the ground. It will burn and not be quenched. The reason we struggle with God's wrath is because we view it like our anger. Our anger is rarely focused or righteous. We tend to lash out when people do not respond or do the things that we want them to do. And it's very selfish. But God's wrath is just and righteous. 
But if God's wrath is just and righteous and God pours his wrath out on the wicked, we might look around at our world and question, where is God? We feel like Habakkuk. God, how long will you make me look at evil and not do anything? But in order to understand this, we need to understand what Paul tells us here in Romans chapter 1. That what we are looking at and what we are seeing happen is actually God's wrath being poured out on a culture. We need to see first the just reason for God's wrath. This is verses 18 through 23. He says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness or impiety towards God and unrighteousness or injustice towards men, the unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. The unrighteous man lives as though no will of God exists. As though God has not revealed his will. The ungodly man lives as if there is no God. And while unrighteousness has to do with morality, our relationship with our fellow man, ungodliness has to do with our religion, our relationship to a savior. Notice the progression between ungodliness and unrighteousness. A lack of respect for God leads to a lack of respect For the people God created. And history has demonstrated over and over that nations that forsake God lose their concern for the rights of the individual. To forsake God will always result in forsaking those made in his image. There's an essential relationship between God's righteousness and his wrath. If. God responded to wickedness with no more than a passive tolerance or some kind of mushy, unconditional, whatever love. His righteousness would be called into question. We see this in the fact that the unrighteousness of man is set in antithesis or the opposite of the righteousness of God. And the result of their ungodliness on unrighteousness is that culture suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. Notice that while truth cannot be changed, it can be held down and stifled. What do we mean by this? Well, we see first that God reveals his sovereignty to all. God's truth is evident to all. Verse 19 tells us what can be known about God is plain to them. It's clear. Everyone can see it. Why? Because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature are clearly 
perceived. They're, they're plainly open for all to gain insight into. God has revealed himself in nature in such a way as to hold all people accountable and responsible. God reveals himself through nature as the creator of the universe. And every man has that relationship. His eternal power, his Godhead are evident. The fact that he is God and has power to punish ought to be revealed to every person by looking at the heavens, by looking at the creation around them. And so they are without excuse. Men could look at the stars and discover the fixed order of their orbits. They could observe that the seed, though it's small, the way it reproduces and grows into a mighty tree, producing more seeds, the cycle continuing. They could see the cycle of the seasons and the way they work hand in hand. They could witness the marvel of birth, the glory of the sunrise over the horizon, the beauty of the waves lapping to the shore. Psalm 19 verse 1 tells us the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. In Acts 14, Paul asked some people he was sharing the gospel with. Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these things to a living God. Who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without a witness. For he did good by bringing you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Every person is without excuse because every person, whether a first century pagan or a person living in 2024, has been given the knowledge of God through nature in his own conscience and has spurned that knowledge in favor of idolatry. And all the various ways it shows itself. Robert Gastro, an astronomer, in his book, God and the Astronomers, writes, Now we see how the astro astronomical evidence supports the biblical view of the origin of the world. The essential elements in the astronomical and biblica biblical accounts of Genesis are the same. Consider the enormousness of the problem. Science has proved that the universe exploded into being at a certain moment. It's asked what caused, uh, what caused produced this effect or, or who or what put the matter and energy into the universe. And science cannot answer these questions. The scientist who has lived by his faith in the power, uh, in the power of the rest, in the power of reason, excuse me, the story ends like a bad dream. He scales the mountains of ignorance. He's about to conquer the highest peak. He pulls himself over the final rock. And he's greeted by a band of theologians who have been there for centuries. Because creation informs us of God himself. Truth is evidence. But the culture worships the creature. Instead of the creator. 
They suppressed the truth. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Because they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were dark and claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. The phrase here probably includes the sense of what is common knowledge about God. Hence the severity of the indictment at the end of verse 20. Paul's obviously thinking more in terms of thanksgiving as a characteristic of life, as the appropriate response of one whose daily experience is, is shaped by the recognition of their creator. But instead, they did not honor him as God. They didn't give him thanks. They became futile or worthless in their thinking. Their foolish heart was darkened. Their unintelligent, blind heart was darkened. One man notes, sin inevitably results in a darkening of human existence. In a moral universe, it is impossible to turn from the truth of God and not suffer the consequences. Another commented, to reject God is to reject the greatest reality in the universe, the reality which gives the only true meaning, purpose, and understanding to everything else. Refusing to recognize God and to have his truth guide their minds, sinful men are doomed to a futile quest for wisdom through various human speculations that lead only to falsehood and still greater unbelief and wickedness. And so we live in a society that has given to rise to this group that says, I believe nothing. And they celebrate it. They fulfill verse 22. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. It's interesting in Acts 17, Paul there in Athens is sharing the gospel on Mars Hill. And he tells them, I passed along and I observed the object of your worship. I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for indeed we are his offspring. But the cultural idolatry of the West is no better. We have exchanged the worship of God for the modern obsessions of wealth, fame, power. Entertainment, and it is equally foolish and blameworthy. We got here because we turned our back on God. How did we get here? We could trace it through the years, perhaps beginning with Darwin and the Order of Species, 1858-59, then moved into the education sphere with that Scopes Monkey Trial of 1925. 
The removal of God then from society itself to the advancement of secularism today. And as this has happened, those who would stand for truth are called foolish. We are told that they are wise and we are fools. Claiming to be wise, they became the fools. Sadly, the church fell prey to disarming theology. This idea that we just need to not make them angry. We just need to not make them uncomfortable. We just need to meet their felt needs and make them happy. Problem is the most fundamental sin in our fallen culture is the sin of idolatry. The sin of refusing to honor God as he is. And we want to strip him of his attributes and turn him into a God of our image and make him fit our box. A God we can live with and be comfortable with. But when a culture turns its back on God, as our culture has, the outpouring of God's wrath is not far behind. So let us look at the just results of God's wrath. As God pours his wrath out on a culture, it becomes evident. When we hear of God's wrath, we usually think of thunderbolts from heaven, of fire falling on Sodom and Gomorrah, of the earth opening and taking in the sons of Korah. We think of God's wrath in that way, cataclysms and flaming majesties. But more often than not, God's wrath goes quietly and invisibly to work in handing sinners over to themselves and their own sin. Notice verse 24. Verses 21 through 23 lay out what they did. And then verse 24 says, Therefore, because they turned their back on God, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. They then act on that until verse 25. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. He speaks about the way that that works into society until he gets to verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. The wrath of God usually is not flaming firebolts, but rather his allowance for you to continue in your sin and expand. For him to say, you really want that? You can have it. And all the consequences that go with it. This text shows us that the effect of divine wrath on man is to show that man who rebels against God becomes subject to the degenerative process of sin. The church father Chrysostom interprets this handing over in a passive sense. By he, he withdraws his influence over these disobedient idolaters. And God permits them to continue and and indeed to plunge more deeply into the sin they have chosen. I think the meaning of handover demands, though, that we give God a little more active role as the initiator of the process. God doesn't just simply let the boat go. 
I think he also kind of pushes it downstream. The worst thing that can happen to sinners is the ability to continue on sinning without any divine restraints. So God's wrath on the culture is not active outpouring of his divine pleasure like we expect, but rather the removal of restraint that allows sinners to reap the just fruits of their rebellion. And so, this moral degradation we see around us, the crumbling of society that we see around us, is a consequence of God's wrath, not the reason for it. Sin inevitably creates its own penalty. Sin is a virus that invades our soul and takes a toll throughout the entire being. Isaiah 9.18 tells us, For wickedness burns like fire. It consumes briars and thorns. It kindles the thickets of the forest, and they roll upward in a column of smoke. We see this outpouring of God's wrath against the culture take, pro- uh, take place through a process of three steps of degradation. First, we see that God, because they refused to acknowledge him as God and worship their idols, he gave them up to impurity. We could label this as the sexual revolution. Therefore, verse 24, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. That word is sexual aberration and uncleanness to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And Paul's point, one man says, is that the whole man's ability to respond and function is not least as a rational being been damaged. Without the illumination that comes from a proper recognition of God, his whole center, his whole person is operating in the dark. And the result is an outbreak of sexual impurity. Have we seen this in our culture? We think back to the sexual revolution of the 60s and 70s. When man, the 20s, 30s, and 40s, removed God from society, the result was the 60s and 70s. And the sexual revolution. Which led, in 1969... To no-fault divorce being legalized in California and signed into law by none other than Ronald Reagan himself. God gave our society over to impurity and a sexual revolution. Which leads then to a second step. Verses 26 and 27. God gives them up to dishonorable passions. We label this the homosexual Revolution. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable or disgraceful passions. For their women exchanged their natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed. Another interesting word meaning set on fire with passion. This ungoverned, evil, pathological desire for one another. Men with men committing shameless acts, obscene acts, and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. It's interesting. In the Greco-Roman world, homosexuality was quite common and even highly regarded. 
It's evident from Plato and Plutarch that it was a feature of social life. Indulgent in not the least by gods like Zeus and emperors like Nero. The homosexual reputations of the women of Lesbos was so well established long before Lucian made it the theme of his fifth dialogue from which we now get the title lesbian. And today, the sexual revolution and the arguments for that sexual revolution and free love, who are you to deny love, has now led to an obscene love. And the result is that they receive in themselves the due penalty for their error. They receive back, there's some emphasis on this reciprocal nature of the transaction. We see it in the homosexual movement of the 90s and 2000s. The transgender movement, then next of the last 10 years, the Obergefell decision in 2015. And these same arguments will continue to be used as that ball continues to roll of God's wrath. Because the final stage is that God gave them up to a debased mind. We might label this as societal chaos. Verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. They did not see fit to acknowledge God. They, they made a decision. God's not real. And so God gave them up to this debased, this disqualified, useless mind that results in societal chaos. And as you read verses 29 through 31, it feels like a statement about our own culture. Evil reigns and righteousness is oppressed. Evil is declared as good and good is declared as evil. Society crumbles under God's judgment. We might be like Habakkuk and say, God, how long are we to look at this evil until you act? And God's answer is, I am acting. So, what's the answer? It feels... As though we're fighting upstream. As though it is hopeless. As though society is gone. What is the answer? Many would think that the answer lies in political reform. And certainly, political reform is desirable and would be good. But it's not the answer because all that political reform would do is delay the inevitable. Men are not evil because there are not laws. Men are evil because they are evil. It doesn't address the root problem. Some think that perhaps the answer is to batten down the hatches, just focus on your family, separate from the world entirely. And certainly, we should teach our children correctly. We will address that in the last message of this series. 
But separating completely from the world is not the answer. We are told that we are to be in the world, but not of the world. Some then are left simply to wring their hands in fear and shake their head in disgust. But God has not given us the spirit of fear. Instead, we must recognize that there is an answer to the slide into secularism that we are observing. The answer is given in the very first verse of the passage we read today. The answer is the gospel. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The gospel is the answer. John 3.36 Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. You have the answer. And if we would be willing to share the gospel with those around us, when the opportunities arise, if churches across this country would rally to the call, perhaps God would re-enter. Perhaps God would work. There is hope because the gospel is powerful. But along with the gospel, we see in verse 17 that the righteous must live by faith. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. A major reason that society has crumbled is not simply that society has fallen into sin, but that the response of the church to this sin has not been the gospel and a righteous life, but rather the desire to become a circus and a show, to make people feel good and have fun. The desire of the church has been to enter the political sphere instead of the kingdom of God. We have forgotten the gospel and we don't live by faith. Habakkuk faced this in chapter 1 as he decried, God, what are you doing? It's interesting as Habakkuk continues that God tells him, I am working. In fact, I am going to take Israel into captivity by the Babylonians. And Habakkuk's response is, wait a minute, God, that's not what I meant. That's not what I was talking about. And God says, you don't understand me. And he begins to lay out who he is and his grand work. And Habakkuk's final response is to say, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no fruit. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer. He makes me tread on high places. The answer to secularism in the slide today is to understand we are not a Christian nation. We are a nation under God's wrath. 
And the answer is not political reform, although we would desire it. The answer is not to run. The answer is not to fear. The answer is to anchor ourselves to God, to live in righteousness and share the gospel. There is hope and you hold the answer. So let me give you three so what's today. Three things you can do to change the culture. One, hold a firm commitment to the authority of Scripture. Don't exchange the truth of God for a lie. God is not interested in meeting felt needs. God is interested in meeting the need of righteousness. Don't surrender the authority of Scripture. The world tells you you are crazy to believe in an ancient book. Hold to it. Number two, hold a firm commitment to the real hope of the gospel. If we believed as strongly in the gospel as we do about our favorite politician, God would change the world. If we believed in the power of the gospel as much as we do our favorite sports team, God would change the world. If we loved the gospel as much as we love our family, God would change the world. Instead of posting on Facebook your next rant, share the gospel. Hold a firm commitment to the real hope of the gospel. And then finally, hold a firm commitment to holiness. Part of believing the gospel is living it out that the righteous will live by faith. Do you seek to live a righteous life? Or do you live a life of idolatry? You hold the answer. You can impact culture. Even though you are one individual in a little rural county of Michigan, you can make a difference in the secularized world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again. That we can have an impact and have hope in a world that is under your wrath. The promise of the blood of Christ that takes away the wrath of God. That has met and fulfilled your wrath in every aspect. So that all who believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. I pray that we would truly believe that that we would live it out and proclaim its glory. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.